Good afternoon. Somebody might want to turn that down a little bit. Well, recently I saw a picture taken from behind of Stephen's daughter, Delphia, following her father on a walk through the woods. Both are in mid-stride with their hands behind their back. It is so precious. It's, it's an adorable picture. And it's also this beautiful picture of following or imitation. A daughter following in the footsteps of her father. This is the title of the sermon today. Follow in your father's footsteps. An imitation is a good thing. That is, if the one being imitated is worthy of being imitated. You see, in the Christian faith, we are called to imitation. Consider just a few verses. You might write down their locations and look at them later. Third, third John, verse 11, says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Or this one in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or one more, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow my example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, the passage we're looking at today, Romans 4, 1 through 15, also speaks of imitation, calling, calling us to follow the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. Through chapters 4 and 5, Paul, the author of this letter, explains further what he had said back in chapter 3. That God's gift of righteousness comes by faith, apart from the law. And it is available to both Jews and Gentiles. Now our main point today is this. God's blessing is not earned, but credited to all who believe in Jesus. God's blessing is not earned, but credited to all who believe in Jesus. Now, as Paul said in Romans 3.21, the law and the prophets testify to that fact. And in chapter 4, he gives us a sample of that testimony in two examples from Scripture. One is Abraham and the other David. These were real men living real lives about 4,000 and 3,000 years ago. They believed God, even when the circumstances around them seemed impossible. Now, I'm going to take you through this passage in four points. In the first, we'll consider Abraham's credit. That is the testimony... This is the testimony from the first five books of the Bible where we find 
Abraham's life. It is the law of God. Our second point, David's accounting, reflects the testimony of the prophets then. David was Israel's greatest king, and David wrote many of the psalms that speak prophetically or forward to God's salvation. Then in our third point, actually, I told you we were going to have four points. We're actually going to have three points. Okay, our third point then is working for nothing. Actually, I think we are going to have four points, aren't we? This is what uh, editing does when, when I work on my sermons. Yeah. So there we go. Following for all, verses 9 to 12, is going to be our third point. And then working for nothing is our fourth point. <laughs> so we'll think about it. Believe me, I got the rest of the sermon down, okay? It's, it's okay. Uh, that's where we're going to think about God's promise, how it depends on faith and not works. So Abraham's credit, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3 ended with Paul saying that there is only one God who is over all people, and that a person is made right with that God by faith, not by what we do. And therefore, we have no reason to boast. Okay, that was a summary of what was in the end of chapter 3. Now in chapter 4, Paul turns to Abraham as an example. And he's continuing this thought about boasting, saying in verse 2, if in fact... Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. Now, proving that Abraham had nothing to boast about, Paul shows that his faith came apart from any work that he did. Paul quotes Genesis 15. In verse 3, he says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you see, Abraham believed nothing more. He believed, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Now let me define credit. Credit is adding to someone's account what they did not have before. Credit is adding to someone's account what they did not have before. Before, For instance, it's like getting benevolence from the church. Someone comes, they have a need, they, they, they don't know how to fill it, and the church gives them help, what they did not have before. Or, or like a teacher giving extra credit on a test. The student did really nothing to earn that. The teacher just bumps their grade up slightly with extra credit. It's a gift, a gift that does not need to be paid back. Abraham received the credit of righteousness from God. And in Genesis 15, this is all coming because God told Abraham that he would have a son. Normally that would not be that surprising. But Abraham was old. And Sarah was well past the age of bearing children. God's promise was more 
it was even more than just about having a, a baby in his own age, though. You see, God said, a son of your own flesh will be your heir. He will receive the inheritance. And your offspring from him will, will be like the number of stars in the sky. Abraham's response to that? Well, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, as surprising as Abraham's response to God is God's response to Abraham. You see, God freely credits righteousness to Abraham simply because Abraham believed God's promise. God gave Abraham what he did not have before. Not only a son, but righteousness. And that came through faith. Now, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And that was certainly true for Abraham. And in, in Romans 4 and in Genesis 15, we see, though, that this faith, it's actually connected to a person. It's not just faith in faith. It's faith that is believing what God says. Faith is believing what God says. Abraham believed God. He, he took God at his word. He trusted that what God said was right and true and good. And God then credited to Abram righteousness. God gave Abram what he did not have before. And we'll see later in this chapter that God said this not only for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. Now, now maybe you are believing in God's promise of salvation, and, and that's good. You should. But are you believing other things that God says about you? Are you believing the other things God says about you? For instance, do you believe God when he says in Colossians 3.12 that you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved? Christian, recall those days when he first revealed this word of life to you. He, he says... He says in his word, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Child of God, you are chosen. He chose you because he dearly loves you. Even as Deuteronomy 10.15 says, God sets his heart in love on the one he chooses. Friend, God loves you. And in Romans 8.39, Paul reminds us that nothing 
in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Dear Christian, you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. What, what one thing, Christian, would, you, would change if you believed in greater measure that God has chosen you, that he dearly loves you, that he is making you holy? Friend, believe God. Believe God, primarily for salvation and also for everything else he says about you. His heart is for you. Well, Paul moves from this testimony with Abraham then to the testimony of the prophets in our second point, David's accounting in verses 6 to 8. You you see, he even says this testimony is the same in verse 6. He says, David speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, now blessedness, blessedness is the state of being blessed. That's what blessedness means. And then Paul quotes Psalm 36, 1 and 2. That's our our verses 7 and 8 here in Romans 4. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That amazing. But did you notice between verse 6 and verse 7 and 8, Paul brings two things together that we haven't seen yet. And that is that righteousness given equals transgressions or sins forgiven. Righteousness given equals sins forgiven. When God justifies us, there's actually two things that are going on. Two things. First, God expiates sin. What that means is he he removes or takes away our sin. Remember last week we saw that he removes it as far as the east is from the west. But he does a second thing. God imputes righteousness. That is, he he credits or he, he puts in us his Righteousness, his perfect, holy righteousness. When God forgives sin, he doesn't just, you know, make us clean and then we have to make ourselves stay clean. That's not what's happening. No, God credits to us his perfect, holy goodness. It's It's often called the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. He takes our broken lives, our worthless works, and he gives us his perfect, eternal goodness that that satisfies his just demand. So if you're ever wondering why Christians seem so happy, that's why. That's that's the reason Christians are happy. He's blessed us who believe in Jesus. 
And, and Christian, I want to just ask, are you living in that blessedness? Are you living in it? Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In spite of circumstances, Christian, trust God's promised love for you. His heart is for you. Now, if you've not received this blessing from God, then that's his call to you right now. It's, it's, it is the blessing you most need. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. This, this is the thing that Christians testify to, along with Abraham and David. God promises to save us from his judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. And this week is what we call Easter week. Okay, it starts with Palm Sunday today. It goes on through next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection. It's really not important, the date. What's important is the testimony that Jesus was killed on a cross for our sins. But God raised him up on the third day. His blood pays the debt of our sins. Sins that we could not afford before God. And his resurrection guarantees that God's credit, his taking away of sin, his, his crediting to us righteousness, he's good for it. God's good for it. And, and now, now he's calling to you. He's calling you through, through his word being spoken, even right now. He's calling you to repent, to turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And that God's righteousness will be given and that you may receive these lavish blessings from the Lord. Indeed, Christian, we are blessed. We are blessed. And this is that hashtag blessed on your, on your, on your outline there. It's not so much... Yeah, mm. With so much bad teaching out there about blessing, I think it's important that we actually talk about that for a moment. Okay? This word blessed is often, as, as Andre said, translated happy. Okay? This happiness, though, is a happiness that comes regardless of our circumstances. It's so, so different than the, the me-centered teachings that are so popular today. Love yourself so you can love others. What, what you feel is more important than what you know. Or live your best life now. Friends, those teachings and many like them are straight from the pit of hell. 
This me-centered stuff is not what the Bible talks about. It's not what Jesus taught. And when you hear it, reject it. Because it is not from God. Consider who is blessed in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That's a passage that we looked at and read responsively in Matthew chapter 5 just moments ago. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Those who are persecuted because of Christ. Now, Jesus' view of blessing does not mean that you go around sad and gloomy all the time. Okay, that's not what it means either. No, in fact, when Paul quotes another teaching of Jesus in Acts 20, 35, he says, it is more blessed to give than receive. More blessed. Jesus wants you to be more blessed. He wants you to be more happy. And he's telling you the way to be more happy. More happy comes when you give yourself away to serve others. Your life, your time, your money, your things. Give it away. It's never going to last anyway. And honestly, it's an attitude of our heart. It's actually scientifically proven that our brains release these endorphins and chemicals that stimulate this feeling of happiness when we give. It's true. Have you ever had that happen? You you give something to somebody and and you get this kind of tingly feeling inside. It's kind of like... It's this attitude of giving rather than receiving. Along with knowing... God's peace through forgiveness that makes Christians the happiest people on earth. Despite the circumstances that they may be facing. The early church knew this. And we have testimony of that. They faced persecution with joy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34. The writer says there, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation or the taking of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. This is the blessing that Paul is pointing to. This is the happiness of having one's sins forgiven and one's transgressions covered. It's eternal peace with God. It's not gaining and grabbing and getting more for yourself in this life only. No. Friends, do you long for happiness? Do you want to be happy? Well, if you've not trusted Jesus, then that... Then, then, then seek first his blessing of forgiveness. This eternal blessing, and the, it is the basis for true joy in the Christian life. But Christian, 
Let me call you to follow Jesus' example in the greater blessing of giving yourself away. Don't, Don't look to store up treasures here on earth. Store it up in heaven by serving others and giving yourself away. Well, Paul continues then in verses 9 to 12, saying that this blessedness is for all, following for all, all who follow in their father Abraham's footsteps. Now, throughout chapter 4, Abraham is called the father. And, And yes, he is a natural father of the Jewish nation through Isaac. He's also the natural father of those once living in Jordan called the Edomites through Esau and of the 12 tribes of Ishmael that were living mostly in Arabia. But Paul's point is not blood. Paul's point is that Abraham's the father of many nations, not through blood or the practice of circumcision, but through faith. And to prove it, Paul shows in verse 9 through 12 that Abraham received God's gift of righteousness before the sign of circumcision came. In Genesis 15, God credits righteousness to Abraham by faith. And then in Genesis 17, God gives him the sign of circumcision. Righteousness came first by faith, and then came the sign. And that, Paul explains, means that Abraham is the father of faith for all who believe in Jesus, whether they've been circumcised or not. And in faith, we who believe, as verse 12 says, are following in our father's footsteps of faith. This pattern, faith, first faith, and then sign, should instruct us in the church. In in the church, it's the same faith, same faith that Abraham and, 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 and David had, but it's a new sign. And that new sign is baptism. Let's, let's look at that pattern, how it changes. We'll look at the pattern here in Romans, and then we'll see how it changes for the church. In verse 11a, or 11, he says... He received circumcision as a sign or the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul's reference to this sign and seal comes from Genesis 17. So we're going to look at Genesis 17 now. In Genesis 17, 6, God says for his side of the covenant, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. That's God's side. And then in Genesis 17.10, he gives Abraham his side. He says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of of the covenant between me and you. And and he goes on to say there in in Genesis 17 that if Abraham's descendants 
even the foreigners that are living among them, if they don't go through this cutting and circumcision, that they will be cut off from the covenant people. So you can see why the Jews thought that, that this rite of circumcision was so important. But what's clear is that faith came first, Genesis 15, then the sign, the seal, Genesis 17. Now with Christ, God has made a new covenant with His people. And this covenant is also based on faith and God's promise. A promise to justify those who believe in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. And then there's this sign. And the sign is baptism. It's still faith first and then the sign. As the church began, and we'll look at this in, in, in Acts. As the church began, people in every city followed that same pattern. Faith first, then sign. Consider the day when the church was born. The people asked Peter, what must we be, do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. So first faith through repentance, then baptism. Now some would turn this around today. Baptism first and then faith. Now we believe that faith must be clearly recognized First, so what it seems the clear teaching of the Bible is faith first, then baptism. It must be seen in a person's understanding of the gospel and, and the testimony of faith that stands against sin and Satan in the world. You know, it's, it's difficult to see this in a, in a child, for instance. But they may want to please their parents. They, they may want to impress their friends. And, and this is why in this church we don't baptize babies. We, we don't have an age for baptism, but you might have noticed we don't typically baptize children. And that's why. Faith must be seen as faith. And then we baptize. Now we also here connect baptism with membership. If, if we affirm somebody's faith and we're going to baptize them, then we want them to receive full inclusion into the church with, with all its privileges and responsibilities. So being baptized is important. Jesus was baptized. And we are, above all things, seeking to follow in His footsteps. So let me, let me just, who should be baptized? Three, three things here. The person who believes. The one that believes in Jesus' death and resurrection that justifies them before God. Secondly, those who are ready. What I mean by that, those who are ready to join the local church as a member of Christ's body. And thirdly, those who are affirmed. What I mean by that is that the church affirms that person's faith. We can see it. We, we agree with their testimony that they are a believer. Now, should you consider being baptized? If you're not, well, here are two reasons why you should. Firstly, because it's a sign and a seal. 
It's a sign and a seal of the covenant that God has made with you. And secondly, it's also a means. It's a means of joining God's covenant family. So just a couple of thoughts as we wrap that part up. If you're a parent of young children wondering about your kids in baptism, I could send you some more reflections on that topic, and we can discuss that more. If you want to, to receive that, come and talk to me, and I'll be happy to share with you some reflections on that. If you want to be baptized, please come talk to me or one of the elders, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that as well. Now, what Paul does make clear here is that no work, not even baptism. It neither initiates nor adds to our salvation. So let's look at point number four, working for nothing. Going, going back up to verses two through five, we read this. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul uses these, this image of wages versus a gift. Okay. To, he uses that to explain how God's righteousness must come by faith only and not by any work that we do. When we work, we expect something in return. When we work, there's a sense of accomplishment. I mean, you feel good, for instance, when you've taught a lesson. Or when you finish baking a cake. Or you get all the legal documents that are needed. There's this sense of, you step back and you say, yes. Because you can see the result. And you've done the work. We take pride in our work. And, and friends, that's not bad. You know, work came before Adam and Eve ever sinned. Work was given to us before the fall. So work is good, it's right, and we should work. We can honor God with our work, and we should feel proud of our work. Grateful to God and proud of a job well done. Work also has a place in our spiritual growth also. Paul tells the church in Philippi, Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But even this doesn't come from us. The next verse says, For it is God who works in you to will, be motivated, and to act in order to fill, fulfill his good purpose. So work is good. But we need to recognize it comes from God. In Romans 4, 2-5, Paul is talking about how justification comes to us. And in justification, 
we add nothing to the equation. As one author puts it, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We add nothing by our works. And so there really truly is nothing that we can boast about. Now remember, in Romans 3.22, Paul said, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And then in in 3.24, he says we're justified freely by his grace. So justification and God's righteousness are his free gifts to those who believe in Christ. And, it, and, it, and even faith is a gift. So even the, even the faith that we respond to God with is a gift. Here, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, For it is by grace that you have been, been saved. Through faith. But this is not of your, from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So even our faith is a gift. Back in Romans, verses 14 to 15, Paul speaks again about worthless works as he, really probably as clearly as he does anywhere in his writings. He says, For if those who depend on the law are heirs, heirs of that promise, then faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Verse 15 confirms this same principle, where where it says there's no law, there's no sin. Where there's no law, or the law leads to, it leads to wrath. Where there's no law, it, it doesn't take away our sin. There's still sin there. But you see, to, Paul is speaking to the Jews specifically. And they were given the law. They, they had the clear command of God. Okay, look, think of it this way. A parent tells their child, I want you home every night for dinner. Okay, it's a general command. Be home for dinner. But then one day, the parent says, I need you home for dinner at 6 p.m. tonight. That command adds weight to the overall command. It's kind of like when, when, when God gave general revelation to all people and now this specific revelation to the Jews and there's more weight to them. It's clear that the law brings wrath when disobeyed, just like it would for that parent if the child comes home after the time the parent told them to be there. Well, look, if obeying the law is required, then faith, it isn't needed. If you can obtain that promise by what you do, then then you don't need faith anymore. And really, that promise that God made, it doesn't have any value anymore. It, it, 
It turns this relationship with God, if, if that were true, it would turn the relationship with God into one of obligation, not of love. It'd be like a, 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 an employee and a boss. I work, you pay. And that's how people treat God when they think their works make them right before him. I'll work, you pay. Those who work for righteousness to be right for, before God don't believe that God would actually freely justify them. They think, no, there's nothing for free. How could that be possible? They don't believe God could be so loving, so full of grace. And yet he is. But, but Christian, look, it's not only about the beginning of our walk with God. Paul says in Galatians, if you begin your walk with God by faith, but then try to continue that walk, by your own work, then Christ is of no value to you at all. You have fallen away from grace. Where does this leave us then? <laughs> Where does this leave us? Do we do anything or not? It leaves us with faith only. Faith only. As Christians, we believe Whatever work we do now is God motivating us and moving us to work for His purposes and His glory in our lives. We believe as Christians that Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. We believe as Christians that God has that, that we are saved by God's grace only. Through faith only. In Christ only. To the glory of God only. And all of that is according to God's word only. Friends, this is what has been called the five solas or the five onlys. Grace only. Through faith only, in Christ only, for the glory of God only, according to the scriptures only. These are the footsteps of faith that Abraham, our father, walked. It's the path that Jesus, our Messiah, taught and the, that the apostle Paul was confirming. These are the footsteps that the reformers of our faith recovered and this is the lives that your elders in this church are seeking to model. And you would do well to imitate all of them. The author of Hebrews concludes his letter encouraging the believers with this word. Chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of of their way of life and imitate their faith. Church, I encourage you also, follow your Father's footsteps of faith. Let's pray.
Father, we desire so to follow the footsteps of Jesus, our Savior, who came humbly and died for us, rising again on the third day, gaining victory over sin, Satan, and death. Oh Lord, may we live in the blessedness that is ours in Christ. Lord, help us to believe you despite our circumstances, even as our father Abraham believed. Lord, may we be those also whom others could imitate as we imitate Christ. We pray this for the glory of his name and for your glory. Amen.